Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Would you take out your Bibles and go with me to Acts chapter 9? We're going to deal with a very basic question. How do I know who I can trust? I don't even need to ask. Have you found yourself trusting people who betrayed you? Trusting people who you were sure loved you and, and you, you opened your heart and you were vulnerable and honest and forthright with them only to find that they were not with you. People that you thought you could trust, people that you thought were, hold on, Christians. You thought their faith was strong and solid and real, and yet they betrayed you. We'll look first of all at the early church. They're going to have to deal with the question of do we or do we not trust Saul of Tarsus? Because he shows up. He comes back to Jerusalem and he wants to, come, he wants to go to church. Do they let him in? Their lives are at stake. And we're going to look at how they process that. And then we're going to talk about us. And we're going to talk about questions about how do we trust people and then how do we become trustworthy. So Lord, open the word to us and grace us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start at verse 26. I'll just tell you briefly how, where we've been. You know Saul of, of Tarsus was, was basically leading the persecution of the church. He rode to Damascus. He apparently cleaned out most of Jerusalem, got everybody he could find. So he rode 140 miles up to Damascus. And there's a large Jewish community historically there and, and, and a lot of Christians. And so he'd heard this and he brought a team of, of Levitical police and up he went to make arrests, bring them back to Jerusalem if they refused to to blaspheme and recant Jesus Christ, and then they would be, uh, in, go through an inquisition and executed if necessary. So he's on the way, and Jesus shows up. You, we've seen this and gone through this, and what, a, what an incredible encounter. Falls to the ground blind, he's healed, he's baptized in the Holy Spirit, he's water baptized, and, and he begins to, to speak to the community there, the Jewish community, He goes into the synagogues and proclaims Jesus as the Son of God. Uh, what, what does a synagogue hear? What, does, what do Jewish men and women hear when you proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God? And so we looked at that uh, from, the, from the scriptures of the Old Testament. Today, we're going to see him in... There's a three-year gap between what we're about to read and, and Paul meeting the Lord in Damascus. He will go... He will, I'll just tell you briefly, he will go back to Jerusalem... The Lord will tell him to get out of town. He'll flee to Arabia. Some, I don't know how long he's in Arabia. I'll tell you where that is another time. All of this. And then he'll go back to Damascus. And he'll get thrown out of Damascus a second time. It, twice. I mean, they let him out of the wall on a, in, a, in a big basket that you'd put wheat or wool in. They stick him in this thing, tie a rope to it, and let him down. He's got a regular route. You know, like, just hang on to that basket. You know, keep it by the window there. Because he went down twice in order to escape because they're so angry somebody wants to kill him. 
I'll start just at verse 23, though this is the first time, and then he does it again uh, exactly the same sort of way with a different group chasing him uh, three years later. When many days, verse 23 is where I am, had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by the right night, took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. He was with them, moving about freely is the way mine says. I'll show you what it says really in a minute. In Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews and they were attempting to put him to death. Here we go again. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. I recently met with a pastor and his wife, and when the conversation finally moved to the topic on their heart, the question they wanted to ask was this, how do you know who you can trust? They had gone through some painful experiences of betrayal and admitted they had now emotionally withdrawn to protect themselves. Do you recognize that pattern? You, you, you get hurt in relationships enough that you emotionally, you're friendly, you're polite, you do all of that, but inside you, you know you have withdrawn. You are, you're back at a safe place. You're not about to expose yourself, uh, your heart to somebody uh, to, so they can do it again. They hadn't seen it coming, so they didn't know what to do differently the next time. They said they'd started out by being open and vulnerable with people, assuming the boundaries and matters of conscience which governed their own walk with God were at work in all Christians. There were things they just couldn't think of doing because their conscience would make them miserable. And on top of that, they feared the discipline of the Lord. But then they watched other Christians doing those very things, apparently without a trace of guilt or remorse. One of them said, I just couldn't do that. And if I did, I'd be miserable. Why can they? They hurt us and lied about us and then went on as if we were the ones, or pardon me, they were the ones who'd been offended. I don't understand. Where does Jesus come into this picture? I don't know anyone who claims to be perfect, but some people come under conviction when they sin, and sooner or later they'll admit the truth or apologize or make it right. Yet there are others who claim to be Christians, who go to church, who believe all the right things. Yet out of the blue, they can do something grossly immoral, cruelly selfish, or coldly dishonest, and not show any sorrow. Years pass, and they never make it right. And the worst part is, God doesn't even seem to punish them. You ever wait for that? You go, oh, he's going to get you. I just waiting. He's going to get you. Come on, God. You know, <laughs> fricassee him, you know. And it seems like he doesn't. It's like, what are you going to do? You putting up with this? If being a Christian doesn't make someone trustworthy, then what does? I really need to know. Because when I trust the wrong people, I get hurt. 
Now, I'm going to retell you the situation of Saul. I want you to really get a feel for it. I want you to understand it because we're going to learn from them. We're going to let them teach us something. So watch. Here we go. We're going to go through this story. And yes, I am... I'm, 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 not just, I'm not inventing a story. I am using the clear clues that are put through scriptures, clear statements. And I'm just putting together into, a, into the, an account. Three years after escaping from Jerusalem, Saul returned to the city with one specific purpose in mind. He says this. I, don't, I didn't come up with this. He wanted to meet Peter. But when he arrived, believers were still afraid of him. Undoubtedly, they assumed he was trying to infiltrate their community as a spy and would then betray them. For some reason, Barnabas trusted Saul and aggressively stepped in as his sponsor. Barnabas may have had friends in Damascus who gave him firsthand accounts of Saul's ministry there, or God may have given him a revelation concerning Saul. But whatever the cause, Luke says he, quote, took hold of him and led him to the disciples. Literally, he took him by the hand and said, come on, and led him into the gathering. So Barnabas, dear Barnabas, becomes his sponsor. He brought him into a gathering where Peter and possibly James were present and personally introduced him. He described in detail how Saul met the Lord and that Jesus had spoken to him. Then he described how Saul had boldly preached in that city. Notice this. He doesn't bring him in and say, okay, Saul of Tarsus, tell him your story. He tells them Saul's story. Did you notice that? He has listened so carefully. He can relate the whole thing. He has spent his time. You need to see that. He spent his time. Barnabas didn't just say, okay, come on. He spent his time with Saul, listened to him carefully. Then he took him in. After he had decided in his own heart, the guy's okay. The guy's okay. Considering all he had done, that is Saul, it's amazing the church welcomed Saul. Not only were they risking their lives, but many would find themselves face to face with a man who had cruelly abused their loved ones. I mean, this picture this. Now you're going to welcome into church a man who took your father, tied him up in the synagogue, whipped him 40 times, shrieking at him, telling him to blaspheme Christ, and when he wouldn't, took and had him executed. Now you're going to sit next to him in church? Hey, you're a brother now. Come on. Do you understand this? And he did it to everybody in town. He couldn't find anymore is why he went to Damascus. He ravished the church, it said. And now he wants to come to your church. You see the trust issues? I mean, this is really, this is, this is a remarkable moment. Forgiving him would require the deepest level of obedience. In order to describe their level of acceptance of Saul, Luke says, and here's what he really said, quote, he was with them in he was with them going in and going out in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. This means they invited him to join them in their pub, daily public ministry. He became one of the preachers, fearlessly proclaiming Christ in a city where he'd been a rising religious leader, and a vicious persecutor of the church. It also means he was invited to stay in their homes. 
The phrase going in and going out pictures the daily rhythm of someone going into a house in the evening and then out into the city during the day. Luke chose this phrase to show us that the church decided to fully trust Saul. Each day, he went out with them as they conducted their ministry, and each evening, he went into their homes where he was provided room and board. In Galatians, Paul says he stayed with Peter for 15 of those days. Peter was undoubtedly very busy, but he personally took Saul with him each day so Saul could observe the ministry he was doing and probably so he could observe Saul. Uh, Come on, you stay with me. You and me, okay? So if you're gonna, if, if we're gonna have trouble, I want to be. I'm, I want to be there. P- Peter's shepherding his church. He's, he's he's watching his flock. So I don't know who this guy is. You know, we're we're we're, going, we're doing this, but you stay with me. <laughs> you know, and I'm gonna watch you. What's what's Peter doing? Peter's just checking him out, <laughs> watching for the anointing. Watching for how God uses or doesn't use Saul. I mean, we're trying to decipher this fellow. Who is he? Peter's watching him. When he arrived in Jerusalem, Saul went looking for Peter. Given his history as the leader of the Inquisition, he would have known where to start looking. You understand? This is the head of the police. This is the guy who's been to all their homes. He knows where the Christian community hung out. At least he knew where they used to live and gather. This knowledge likely led him to their main gathering place in Jerusalem, which was the home of a woman named Mary. This was the house where Jesus had met with his disciples and had conducted the Last Supper. And it's also the house with an upper room where the disciples gathered to wait for the promise of the Father. The Mary who owned this house was the mother of John Mark, who wrote the gospel of Mark, and she was also either the cousin or possibly the sister of Barnabas. I'm not making this up. You understand? I give you references. You can look. It is specifically said that John Mark is, and the word either means his cousin or his nephew. I prefer to think it's his nephew. John Mark is Barnabas's nephew. Does that give you some explanation about some of the relationships you'll see with Mark and, and Barnabas? Remember how Paul fought over Mark? Didn't want him to come? Well, Uncle Barnabas said, well, I'm taking him with me then. And we're going to Cyprus, our family home. It all begins to fit. Quite a remarkable picture. Now... She is either the cousin or possibly the sister of Barnabas. If indeed Saul went to her house looking for Peter, it would be no surprise if she had quickly sent for Barnabas to come and talk to this dangerous man who'd arrived at her door. Um, Come in. Uh, Why don't you sit right there? Go get your uncle now. (laughs) Don't ask now. Can I give you a cup of tea? I mean, you know it had to be like that. It just has to be like that. Barnabas shows up. Remember who Barnabas is. This this guy's a wonderful man. This guy is a Levitical priest who's come to the Lord, baptized in the Holy Spirit, incredibly generous. He's a true leader in the church. So Uncle Barnabas, or or my cousin comes, and he begins to 
talk to this man. And he begins to sit down with Saul and clearly debriefs him. So tell me your story. Tell me what's happening. He, and he's listening. He's discerning. He's watching this whole thing. All this takes place before he takes them up to uh, the gathering with the, with, the, with the church leaders. Listening to Saul. Luke says Barnabas took Saul by the hand and led him to the apostles. Peter later will say he only met two, I mean, pardon me, Paul will later say he only met two apostles on this particular visit to Jerusalem, Peter and James, the Lord's brother. When Barnabas stood beside Saul in front of the apostles, and there were probably other elders present, he told them Saul's story. Notice he didn't have Saul tell them, but he had listened so carefully, he was able to accurately retell the details. He told them, quote, how Saul had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. In other words, he'd taken the time to personally discern that Saul was trustworthy and did so before taking the next step of introducing him to others. It's possible Barnabas had already received reports from Damascus about Saul's activities there, but the fact that he took on the role of Saul's sponsor tells us he personally became convinced Saul was sincere. During the process, he must have received some kind of inner witness from the Holy Spirit that Saul really loved Jesus. Without question, the gathering of apostles and elders did the same thing too. They too prayerfully listened and watched to assess whether or not this man was a spy trying to infiltrate them or a genuinely transformed man. If they were wrong and welcomed him into their community... It could be a fatal blow to the church in that city. He would gather enough names and addresses to finish the job he'd started three years earlier. If they got it wrong, they would probably lose their lives. Talk about needing to get it right. How do we know who to trust? How do we know if we can trust this guy or cannot trust this guy? How do we decide this? Because in this case, if we get it wrong, he comes back with the police, arrests us, and they'll stone us. The question was not only was Saul sincere in his faith, notice this, but was he spiritually mature enough to come back to Jerusalem? There was no question about his level of theological education. He was extremely knowledgeable. But knowledge does not always translate into maturity. So once they decided he was safe, They invited him to join them as they went into the city each day to minister so they could watch him. When given opportunity, he preached boldly, and then afterward he he would talk with individuals and get into heated spiritual discussions. Because he himself was a Hellenistic Jew, it's no surprise he got into intense debates with other Hellenistic Jews. Many of them must have been old friends because he'd grown up in that city. One can only imagine the energy in those discussions as Jewish scholars who had memorized huge portions of scripture argued back and forth about prophetic passages. Wouldn't you like to hear that conversation? I mean, they're, they're just snapping it off. They're, this would have been, you know, scriptural debates, and they didn't end up happy. And some must have ended bitterly because just as had already taken place in Damascus, A plot was formed to physically attack Saul and kill him. You see this response he keeps getting? He's got a style. (laughs) Saul and Peter. There's two styles here. 
And, and Saul's is preach, preach it at you right down your throat and then get into it and prove you're wrong and win the argument and have you want to kill him. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Somehow the church discovered the plot and quickly escorted Saul down to the seaport of Caesarea and there helped him find a ship headed north. They were helping him to escape helping him escape to his childhood home of Tarsus. But in saying this, Luke uses a verb which possibly hints that there was another purpose in their actions as well. He says they sent him away to Tarsus. His, the, the verb is it's unusual. In fact, when I looked at it, I think it's hard, almost the only use of this thing. It's, a, it's the apostello verb, you know, sent, to send. But with, with, a, with a preposition on the front, Eck or out of, away. And I, I don't think it's used anywhere else. So he, he's making a point. They put him on the boat and they sent him away. Bye. You go home. His presence in the city and style of ministry had again stirred the fires of persecution, which prior to his arrival had begun to die down. Notice they're out in the streets again. They're back out ministering again, and here he comes. Their their assessment was that Saul was sincere, but his style of ministry was way too confrontational. Did you notice that trusting Saul involved two different matters? Now, this is is important. This is my sermon now. (laughs) Not just one. Yes, they had to decide if he was sincere. But they also had to assess whether or not he was mature. A sincere but immature Saul could end up doing as much damage as a deceitful spy. He could stir the whole thing up and get the whole church persecuted and and removed one way or another. He could throw the church and city back into turmoil. They had to discern his sincerity But they also had to watch his maturity. I want you to say that. Discern his sincerity. They had to discern his sincerity, but they also had to watch his maturity. Say it again. They had to discern his sincerity, but they also had to watch. You you don't discern maturity. You watch maturity. You know a fruit a tree by its fruit. You lay hands suddenly on no man. You watch for maturity. You discern for sincerity. A person may be sincere, but in their immaturity, they're just about as dangerous as though they were insincere. You follow this? This really comes into play. Because most of us, we're asking ourselves about other Christians. Do I trust you? And what do we typically think? Typically think We typically think, you're a Christian. How long have you been a Christian? Do you know your Bible? It does not translate into maturity. Maturity is not something that necessarily comes with the passing of time. It generally helps, but someone can be a Christian for a long time and remain desperately immature. And someone else can be a Christian for only a short period of time and already be very mature. It all depends on where we start our journey, but it also depends on the decisions we make about how we will live along the way. People make decisions about how they're going to live out their Christian life. There's, there's people who are very passive about it. 
Yeah, I prayed a prayer. Figure I'll go to heaven. But they take no personal responsibility to nurture their spirit. They have no sense of need on a daily basis for God. They, they, did, the, they did the heaven hell thing. But they, they aren't walking with him. They don't feel like they need him. People live their lives, their Christian lives, very differently. Other people are hanging on for dear life. Listen to some of the things Paul is forced to say to some seriously immature believers in Ephesus. Go with me to Ephesians 4. Now, I want you to really notice he's talking to Christians. And and I promise you, Lord, help me keep my promise. I am not preaching this. I'm just checking it off. I just want you to see it. We'll start at verse 17. He's writing to Christians and look at the kinds of things he has to say to them. So um, Ephesians 4 verse 17. So this I say, and I affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God uh, because of the hardness of their heart. First of all, he says, don't act like unbelievers. Stop acting like unbelievers. <laughs> they have become, and they having become callous and given themselves to sensuality, practice every kind of impurity, quit acting like they do. But you didn't learn Christ in this way, if indeed you've, been, you've heard him and have been taught in him, just as as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with lusts of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Think differently. Put on the new self, he says. Now look at the list, verse 25. Here's stuff you're supposed to stop doing. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. Quit lying to each other. Verse 26, be angry and yet... Do not sin. Quit harboring bitterness. Number 20, verse 27, don't give the devil an opportunity. Don't hang around sin. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Okay, Christians, let's get this click care. You can't keep stealing. You need to stop stealing now that you're a Christian. I remember a funny story. I won't tell the thing, but just the substance of it. Um, uh, uh, one of my professors told me this. Billy Graham, at one of his, convent, uh, one of his uh, meetings, had, had converted one of the, um, uh, a mafia leader, a professional gangster, you know, one of these. I, if I pull the name up, you'd recognize it. It's a recognizable name. And, uh, and the guy had uh, gotten saved, and yet he kept doing his gangster stuff. And finally, you know, somebody came to him. One of them said, uh, by the way... Uh, you know, now that you're a Christian, I mean, he'd go around giving his testimony, but he kept, you know, robbing and doing whatever he's doing. And, and, and finally they said, you can't do that. And he said, well, nobody told me that. They said, I want to invite Jesus into my heart, you know? And, he, and, he, and, he, and then he said, uh, no, I don't intend to stop. I just, I'm a Christian gangster. <laughs> really? I'm not making that up. And he said, well, you can't be that. And then he said, well, I don't want to be a Christian then, you know? Um, so, so Paul's having to say to him, well, by the way, now that you're a Christian, you can't steal anymore, okay? Stop stealing, go to work, because that's what he says next. He says, work, please, don't steal. Uh, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, quit talking dirty. Uh, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 
Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander and malice be put away from you. Be kind to one another. Quit talking mean about each other. Then he goes, verse 3 of chapter 5. Immorality. Now he's talking sexual stuff. Or impurity or greed must not be named among you. Quit doing that stuff. No filthiness and silly talk. No coarse jesting. Don't tell dirty jokes. And they are, which are not fitting. And don't you know that no immoral or impure or covetous man or an idolater or an has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. That means go to heaven. So he's saying, I don't know where we missed our lesson along the line, but you can't keep just doing this stuff and go to heaven just because you're a Christian. It, it needs to start stopping. He's having to say that to Christians. This isn't to unbelievers. It's to Christians. The simplest definition of maturity is becoming like Jesus. And he says, that happens when I stay close to him. Remember his phrase? If you abide in me. If you stay close to me. If you stay in relationship with me. Like a, like a branch is grafted into the, to the vine. And you're drawing your life and your relationship. And your, if you're constantly with me, you'll bear fruit. But boy, when you detach from me, you Christian branch and the thing, when you attach, detach from me, you dry up. You stop producing fruit. In fact, in, if, if not enough time goes by, you get thrown away. It's pretty vivid. Now, I know this isn't what we're supposed to talk about, but the, the, the message is, doesn't matter what you do, or how, you know, you're, you're, you're just going to heaven. But the Bible doesn't say that. And every so often, I need to tell you the truth just a little bit. I don't want to overdo it. And don't write me a note. I do. I get really scolded uh, for, for, for telling you the truth. It's not my fault. I didn't write the Bible. And I'm not making it up and I'm not being sour. There are lines. This isn't a game. You don't pray a dumb little prayer and then you're fine for there. Just got it. You got it. You got that covered. You enter into a real relationship. And you and I are to become moral, clean, godly people. Sure, we all start different places. The process, he's, we, he covers us, he forgives us, he loves us, he helps us, he's with us. But that doesn't mean you blow it off. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It means there's grace while you're learning. Grace while you're growing. Grace while you're getting free. That's what that means. So when we're deciding whether or not to trust a person... We often look at the wrong things. We ask, are they a Christian? How long have they been a Christian? Do they know the Bible? And we make the decision way too quickly. Here are some dangerous attitudes that can lead to bad decisions. First of all, isolation. People say, I have great discernment. I don't need to count the counsel of others. They used to give these spiritual gifts tests I don't know that they do anymore. Probably somebody does. I gave a bunch of them. And one of the things that was interesting was people virtually always scored themselves high in discernment. Everybody felt they were discerning. And clearly they aren't. I have learned, I'm going to just, I don't know if this is good or bad news to you. My own discernment is pretty poor. I really have learned I need the counsel of others. I, I, need to, I need to wait. I need to be slow. I need to be careful. Because if, if for some reason, I will trust. I, I tend to trust the Christ in you. And assume, like that, the, assume that 
your heart and your walk is such that you'd never do something like that. And then I find people just doing some amazing things. Just amazing things. And so I have learned, have you? I really need other brothers and sisters just to pray with me on some matters. And I, I need the counsel of others. Um, that person would never do something like that. Honestly, I think any one of us could do about anything under enough pressure, you know, if, if we don't know how to walk with God. So just, you, you just don't assume that. We had a situation, and I'm going to be oh so discreet, uh, but my wife was talking to somebody, and we'd had a, an accusation against an, another pastor. Not here and not in our church. Um, and this one person... Uh, the accusations were pretty solid, pretty, pretty serious stuff. And, and um, we said, well, we need to inquire. We need to meet and look at this. And this one person said, how dare you even question this person? How dare you even ask that they would do it? Of course they didn't do it. Didn't want to even inquire. Well, I'll just tell you that a year or two down the line, it came out. Not only had he done it, it had been worse than anyone thought, which he admitted finally. And it was just this nasty wasp nest. Look, you, you, you don't ever just blindly assume that person could never. It doesn't mean, you, doesn't mean you're suspicious of everybody in, a, in an unpleasant way. But it does mean you just know human nature and you know the power of the devil. And, you, and, and, we, and we don't judge each other in a harsh way. It's not about nailing somebody and disposing of somebody. It is about knowing the weakness of human flesh. Cynicism. Here's the other side. Everybody is rotten. Nobody should be trusted. That is not acceptable. You know. <laughs> it, you know where it comes out is men. They're all alike. We are not. We are not all alike. I, I will grant you, some women have a penchant for finding the bad ones. I mean, you can go, you mean, just one after another. I don't know what it is about you. It's like a magnet. And, and, and women aren't all alike. People are different. And, and so you, you can't categorize people. And, and you can't, it is not okay to just say, well, I'm just not trusting anybody. And they're all rotten. Impatience. I don't have time to, make, to make, wait to make this decision. Oh, that is where you really, really, really make this mistake. This is what I've learned, and I, it frustrates people. You know, people often show up, and they've been here two weeks, and they want me to trust them. Well, I don't distrust you, but I don't trust you either. Uh, and I'm going to need to watch you a while, particularly if we're talking about spiritual ministry or trusting other people into your care. I'm going to watch you for a few years. I'm not waiting that long. I have been an elder and I've been a Christian longer than you've been alive. Well, then go start your own church, your own cult. You, know, you don't need me. You're that hot, go for it. I'll tell you who, I mean, some, some of those ones who are bouncing around, the religious ones, they're the worst. They're bouncing around for a reason. They got thrown out of the last place. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind, but let's, as I say, a little bit of truth once in a while is helpful. This is the world you're living in. 
You cannot blindly or naively just step back. There are fabulous people that are pressing in and walking with Jesus. And there are people that are very, very dangerous in the Christian community. And you, it, not just, I don't mean at large, you know, the, the, I mean in our own relationship structures. Timothy 5 there, Paul says what? Lay hands suddenly on no man. And then he goes on to explain why. He says, some men's sins precede them. In other words, it's obvious. It's all over the place. You know what's wrong with them. You know what their problem is. But then he says, others, their sin follows behind. In other words, only after time do you discover what was in the closet. And he warns us. And he says, if you lay hands suddenly, meaning set them into some sort of leadership role over other people, And have not tested them and watched them long enough to be sure of their character. What the damage they do to others, God will hold you responsible for as well. Because you were careless and irresponsible in putting that person over over some tender lambs who got wounded. Because you didn't have the patience and the self-control to watch long enough to see. That's what he's saying. Powerful stuff, isn't it? Jesus says it this way, you'll know a tree by its fruit. A good tree can't produce uh, bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So you got to watch long enough to see the fruit. Or know someone you really can trust who has. Vested interest. This one's dangerous. Romance, financial greed, ambition. I want this to work. How many, how many... People have said, uh, they want to marry somebody. Young people, please. But he's, yeah, or old, yeah. Actually, old people. Young ones are. But he's a Christian. Oh, really, is he? How do you know? I went to church, grew up. He'd be robbing banks on Saturday night for all we know. You know, just because he's a Christian or he knows his Bible. Doesn't go to church much, but he's a Christian. Okay, check that off. And how badly people are getting hurt with this. I mean, right now, if, if ever there was a time, you need the discernment of the Lord. If you're on, let's just be candid here, on who you marry. You really do. Idealism. Real Christians won't do things like that. Self-protection. This is one I have failed here. I don't want to see anything negative, so I selectively ignore certain behaviors so I won't have to confront or be embarrassed. Or, Or when I confront, they lie to me, and I don't have the courage to press it. I again drop back to that, well, a real Christian wouldn't lie to me. You're a real Christian, so it must be true. Trust factors. Here are some qualities to look for in a person who's trustworthy. Number one, false or true. Is this person a disciple or just religious? Please, you, you mean, no, who can know the human heart? But you watch a bit. You, do, are, is there a passion in worship? Is there, uh, do they have a morning time with the Lord? Do you understand the pride it takes to live your life without having a regular time within the Bible or prayer? To assume that you're so good you can handle life really without him? So when someone has no 
time with the Lord on a regular basis, they will, they will revert to the old them. And the old, let's just talk about the old Steve. The old Steve is just as, as fearful, depressed, ambitious, whatever you want to put on there, as, as, as he ever was. The old Steve, uh, the, 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 the Steve, when he's full of the spirit, he's close to the Lord. The Lord is correcting his thinking constantly with the word. The Lord is correcting him and comforting him by the spirit. That, that Steve's really a nice person. Don't trust him entirely, but he's pretty, but, you know, pretty, he's pretty nice. He's, he's pretty effective. But if Steve just gets proud and decides he doesn't need that stuff and just kind of cru- cruises on on his knowledge, Steve becomes nasty old Steve. And so do you. And so do you. And it's pride and naivete that does not assume I desperately need him regularly. Time in the Word, so it's really a fresh, wonderful thing. So they learn to memorize Scripture. They learn to, to stand on the promises of God in their life. They learn to live with Him. Learn to live with Him, to have that sweetness. If you have a good time in the morning with Him, it will be the sweetest time of the day. It is not like, oh, i got to do this, i got to read this much, and i got to do this thing, check that off. If it's that, you don't know what you're doing. But if you learn to have it in a sweet way, so it's just a beautiful time. And then you, then you enter your day. But you enter it with him. Now you're walking in the spirit. And that's, you're, really, you're really outstanding. I'm not just flattering you. You are something else when you're walking in the spirit. Wise or foolish? What's their history? Loving or selfish? Listen to how they speak. Is it all I stuff? Do they talk about themselves all the time? Some people are self-salesmen. They spend the whole time telling you how wonderful they are. And how desperately you need them. Really, they do. And they're very good at it. And they're very convincing. You think, boy, we need you. Watch what they do. Not what they say they believe in and love and care for. What do they do? Anointed or powerless? In other words, does God trust them? I have learned that with, with religious leaders of any, at any level... If there is not an anointing, and I don't mean are they clever or charming or effective. I'm saying, is the sweet love of the Lord around them? Is he blessing them? Is there a wisdom? Is it clear that they're walking with him? That a religious leader who does not have an anointing is very dangerous. There is a reason they're not anointed. I won't go any further with that. Peace or confusion? Do I feel inner tension around this person? Or is my heart at rest? You know the term red flags? I don't know why. Notice this. The head says one thing, the heart says another. The heart goes beep, 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 warning, 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 beep, beep, beep. The head goes, oh, come on, you're so suspicious. You're so, you're always looking at the negative. You just think, you know, what's the matter with you? The heart goes beep, 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 beep. He goes, stop it, stop it, stop it. They, they're that way because of their mother. <laughs> Give them a break. Beep, 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 beep. Huh? This is, this is where we lose. The, well, often when things blow, you realize, I knew that. I knew that. I knew it a long time ago. My heart told me, but I didn't 
listen. I do this a lot. I'm not pointing at you. Trusting me, not me, us. I mean, you. (laughs) When all is said and done, the real question is, am I trustworthy? Becoming a Christian doesn't mean I can't sin anymore. It means I don't have to sin anymore. I'm free to obey and have been given access to the power to overcome temptation. Did you follow that? Doesn't mean you can't sin anymore. I know I'm a new creation, but you come on, you can. It's in the spirit you are. What God has done in your spirit and joining you to him, that's new, that's wonderful. It's a new potential. But you are not free and it won't be till the resurrection of the flesh. And anyone who tells you different is going to lead you into trouble. You have to come to grips with your flesh and know it's there. And know that God, that how much you need him to walk in victory. And you can. But if I don't know how to draw on that power or, be, or become passive or proud, I can become as immoral, selfish, or dishonest as anyone in town. What we believe will either protect us from sin or make us vulnerable. Here's what I personally believe. I put that down because people get mad at me for what I believe. I, I do. I have some nasty things that get said to me on this. A lot of people want to just say, oh, no, once you're a Christian, you're, everything is, is you're, just, you're just wonderful. And, and don't, don't ever tell me that I'm ever accountable before God for my sin. He just loves me the way I am. He does love you. And he, boy, this father of yours will discipline you. But it's more than that. There is a devil that hates your guts, and he will clean your clock. How about that for a few idioms, huh? I string the idioms together when I'm really anointed. (laughs) Number one, I personally believe this. This is how I live my life. If you want your own religion, go ahead. This is how I live my life. I recognize my own weakness and know I am vulnerable to temptation. I mean on a daily basis. I do not assume I have somehow become invulnerable. I know I am. Number two, I know I am prone to self-deception. So I must constantly read the word and worship. My own mind, my own thinking, trying to do my very best. I will get deceived and confused and off in left field. I need the word of God bringing me back to the truth regularly and in worship when I'm in worship so often attitudes I've been holding thoughts I've been having get changed the Holy Spirit comes right in and reveals to me what the truth is I go man I've been I've been thinking crazy that happens a lot does it to you Ah. number three I must proactively avoid being caught in tempting environments been made fun for this. We have we got windows all through our offices. We have policies and rules about being with the opposite sex. We have all kinds of uh, protections for our finances, for everything. Why? Because we're paranoid and weird? No, we know the flesh and we know the power of the enemy to tempt. So what do you do? You proactively avoid it. I fear sin. And know the devil is waiting for an opportunity to wound me and will do so severely if I step out of God's protective covering. I know all sins can be forgiven. But I also know that the damage caused by some cannot be undone. I can do things that will damage me and others for the rest of our lives. 
Am I forgiven? Yes. Will God come when I truly repent and help me mitigate the thing? Absolutely. I can do things, though, that can never be undone. I know that if left unchecked, some sins have the power. Now, hang on to your hats. Put your arms and feet inside the car. And please, no flash photography. Here we go. Hang on. I know that if left unchecked, some sins have the power to crush my faith under a weight of sin and guilt that take my salvation from me. If left unchecked, if unrepented of, if I continue on in certain areas, that will so smother my faith with shame that if, if you really come down to it, my trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ has died. It, it, the flame slowly goes down, 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 down. Where does it pass? Only God knows. He'll fight for you. He'll fight for you. He'll go after you. He is so faithful. But you don't toy with that line. You don't toy with that line. I trust God to fight for me, but I know there's a horrible possibility if I do not repent. All those comments about Paul saying it leads to death, that's what he's talking about. Number seven, I know if unrepented, Sin decreases my awareness of God's presence and lifts the anointing to minister. That's a grievous thing for me. And finally, let's have a positive one. I also know that by walking in obedience, there is great blessing. By paying the price, I allow God to prosper me, my family, my ministry. I know that the long-term sweetness of his blessing, even here on earth, far outweighs the momentary pleasure of sin. By saying no to sin, I am saying yes to God's plan for me, my family, and those I cover. Would you read that last line out loud? By saying no to sin, I am saying yes to God's plan for me, my family, and those I cover. Do you understand? Have you lived long enough to see the blessing, to see the pleasure of the Lord on you and on your family, to watch how he provides for you financially, protects you, blesses your children and grandchildren, watches over it? Do you understand that that kind of talk is not poetry or wishful thinking? It is tangible. It is real. It is wonderful. No, we don't live above all of the problems of life, but he is with us. And all of those. And I'm going to tell you, I'll close with this. The single, the single most important thing I do to protect my, my family, to protect this church, protect the calling on my life, is to single-heartedly love my wife. Loyalty. Mentally and physically, to love her and to be loyal to her protects everything else. It's from there. I've learned that after a lot of years. I know it to be true. Would you stand with me? So who do we trust? Well, we look for their sincerity. But we also have to look for maturity. In fact, we watch for maturity. And we don't trust quickly. Not cynical, not defensive. But we don't just trust quickly. Trust is a precious thing. When I, when I trust somebody, I'm giving you my heart. I'm trusting you. 
I generally will try to start out trusting, but I'm but there's a pause till I've seen. Am I trustworthy? That's the one thing I can control. Am I trustworthy? Father God, this day we stand before you, and I think not one of us in this auditorium has not been burned. We've given our heart, and we've opened up, and we've become vulnerable, and we trusted and we believed in to find the weakness of human flesh, the frailty, the selfishness, the cruelty, things that just stunned us. We pray, Lord, one, that you, you certainly heal us, but Lord, we, we know the right response is not to simply pull into a shell and never trust or love again. That is wrong. That's deadly. We must grow. We must mature. Would you grace us, our God, in the word of God, it, to listen to these clear commands of our apostle and to watch this early church, how they handled things, and to walk in these ways that we too could trust and have deep community, give our love freely and wisely. Come, Holy Spirit, grant us wisdom. These are troubled times, but we choose to love each other. We choose to walk in these things and let true community be built in the midst of a troubled society. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be the Lord who wants us to love each other as you, Father, love your Son. And your son loves you. Grace us with such love, we pray. In Jesus' powerful name, we pray it. You agree with me? Would you say amen? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.